if there's anything you should walk away from from today's podcast is that you live in turbulence and if you're going to hide under a rock every time something is turbulent you're going to spend a lot of your life hiding under a rock so today i want to talk to you about property design theory which will help the conversation piece that you don't need to hide under a rock Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, Property Design Theory. Yes, we're doing some theoretical work when it comes to real estate investment. Of course, everyone loves the idea of predicting capital growth. It's a very hard thing to do. I haven't met anyone who's been able to do it yet. And of course, if you look at all the data out there and all the economists, most of them get real estate horribly wrong. I don't know too many people who've got real estate right when it comes to predictions. But I tell you what, if we use property design theory, we can be predictive around capital growth instead of trying to predict it. Yes. Is that a tongue twister? Well, I tell you what, big part of my job is trying to find predictive capital growth Also, strong yields, places which are going to evolve over time and become better. And of course, lifestyle precincts, which hold their value over the long term. The real fundamental today of real estate investment. So welcome to the show. If it's your first time tuning in, uh, make sure you play the show in double speed, get your life back. And of course, all the episodes I've done are actually lessons on real estate. So... I think we should talk about property design theory. Now, obviously, when it comes to the wealth plans I work on, I've got seven of them. Uh, Finance and lending plan, tax minimization plan, a capital growth plan, uh, rental growth plan, debt reduction plan, wealth acceleration plan, and of course, an income or retirement plan. So today, we're going to carve out a piece of that pie Uh, we're going to carve out the capital growth plan. How can we create capital growth in our life? Well, I'm a big believer in to do that, we need to be predictive around growth and we'll talk about what that actually looks like. So a lot of people obviously got a lot of worries at the moment. I think uh, when it comes to real estate, probably if you speak to anyone thinking about becoming a property investor, their worries are things like, the cost of mortgages, the cost of living. Uh, What if property values go down? Uh, What if there's a property decline? These are kind of the conversation pieces that I see most people talking about in real estate. And of course, the bandwagon, if you like, is, uh, you know, is basically sitting on the fence when it comes to real estate. Now, loss aversion is a bias and basically it's a cognitive bias that basically describes when individuals sense this kind of pain when it comes to, uh, you know, potentially losing something. And I think Uh, Quite often what happens inside of real estate is a lot of investors suffer from loss aversion. They uh, basically feel like 
they'd rather not lose money than go and make money. And obviously, I think the market's at that point at the moment. It's in this kind of section where people are like, you know what, I'd rather not actually work out how to go and make money in my life. I am just trying to hold on to what I have. Now, that theory doesn't work out so well because the time money race is a race that most people are in, all of us are in, but most people don't know they're in it. Now, what's to say the pension is going to exist beyond 2035? What's to say that? Uh, I don't personally don't believe it's going to happen. I've put a podcast out there. Um, as I alluded to in my last podcast, Australia's outstanding uh, economic growth over the last three decades may not be what it looks like in the three decades ahead. So, should we even be worrying about things like, uh, you know, that we have to pay an extra 1% on our mortgage costs? Like, come on, like we've got bigger problems ahead, right? We've got to play the game and you are in a race. So always take action. Don't think about loss aversion, i.e. holding on to what you have. If you don't have enough, what are you actually holding on to? That's kind of the conversation. And Again, life is not a dress rehearsal. We've got to we've got to get out there and put some things together. Now, again, the other bias that a lot of people have is planning bias. Basically, everything takes longer than we expect. Everything. Planning bias is a big problem for property investors because quite often property investors love the idea of being in a hurry. Oh, I invested in property, why aren't I rich? You know, I invested six months ago, why haven't I made a hundred grand? So what happens to people is they start to diminish because they don't play the time money race and then they uh, underestimate how much time they actually have to complete the race altogether and we call that planning bias. We tend to overestimate what we can achieve in one year and actually underestimate what we can achieve in 10 years, planning bias. So again, like if you've got 10 years to your retirement or 20 years to retirement, you're in a race, whether the market's going uh, up, down or sideways, what we can do is property design theory. And I'm going to teach you about property design theory as we do today's talk. Now, the biggest problem you buy when it comes to real estate is the problem of time. And this is why the time money race is so critical to property investment. Now, long-term property investment is 21 plus years. Think about that, right? You may be 30, you're going to be 51 before your asset turns long-term. You're 40, you're 61 before your asset turns long term uh, turns, has a birthday of long-term. So, you know, I try and break it down because traders, 21 to 24 months, I'm a trader. I do that through joint ventures. I'll talk to you about that. Uh, speculation though, one to six years. And right now, what you're finding is that a lot of people due to loss aversion are actually not investing because actually when they think about investing, they're actually speculators. They're one to six year people. So they're like, well, if I'm going to, you know, am I going to make money in the next two weeks? And again, 
property design theory will make you money. I'll show you how it works. Short-term investing, sell 7 to 12 years. Medium-term, 13 to 20 years, 21-plus years being a long-term investor. Now, I don't know too many long-term investors. I know a lot of short-term speculative investors. But the longer you hold real estate, the better off you're going to be. I know, for example, some famous renovators that would have made more just holding real estate than, for example, trying to buy, renovate, flip, sell, and move on, right? So if the more we can control assets and control wealth, the better off we're going to be. Now, we're going to be in a world that is the right way up, but also upside down for the rest of our life. And again, if there's anything you should walk away from from today's podcast is that you live in turbulence. And if you're going to hide under a rock every time something is turbulent, you're going to spend a lot of your life hiding under a rock. So today, I want to talk to you about property design theory, which will help the conversation piece that you don't need to hide under a rock. You just need to get the buying part done well when it comes to real estate investment. So most investors use two approaches with trying to create money from real estate, okay? I would say C-grade investors use these two approaches. The first approach, ride the market. That's it. If the market's moving, they're in. Uh, If the market's not moving, they're out. That's the first approach a lot of Australian property investors use. As soon as the market becomes soft, people don't want to be part of the market. And again, today I want to talk to you about property design theory, about being predictive about capital growth, where we can see something's going to add value to our real estate. The second approach most Aussies love is the tinker with improvements approach. So they buy a piece of real estate, it's a C-grade property, and they spend 20 years tinkering with it, um, trying to always extract a little bit more and more value out of the real estate. But at the end of the day, they love just this kind of like, I've got something old, I'll get to tinkering with it one day. Now, there's two biases that human beings have that are, uh, you know, part of this puzzle that a lot of people love to ride the market. And we called that the bandwagon effect. The bandwagon effect is just the idea that beliefs grow as more people adopt them. And again, for real estate investors, the more people want real estate, the more you want real estate. The less people want real estate, the less you want real estate. And again, if you're going to let other people's emotional state dictate your financial freedom, then you've probably got to work on yourself, not necessarily worry about the real estate marketplace. Now, of course, we want fundamentals when it comes to the market. Market growth is important. This is why we try and create fundamentals around you know, where the population's going, where jobs are, where demographics are evolving, where infrastructure is being placed, where the yields work, and of course, where supply and demand uh, definitely unfolds in our favour, right? That's just, that's the market. 
Uh, market is driven by sentiment, and the sentiment is a bias around the bandwagon. The more the bandwagon works for property, the more people want to buy property. It comes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The other idea that people love in real estate, as I alluded to, is trying to tinker with real estate. So what that looks like is you buy a very old property, uh, you sit on it, and you tinker with it over time because you can't afford to do a major project, i.e. huge renovation, the huge renovation costs. Uh, what a lot of property investors is do is they just buy an old property with the concept that it's so old that one day they have to add value to it or if they can't add value to it, someone eventually will. And we call this in the industry IKEA bias. Now think about IKEA, it's the furniture shop. What they do is they will prefabricate a property, put it in a box, send it to you. You open the box and you tinker with some furniture which is already fundamentally built. You've just basically got to put the screws in and you tinker with it, the IKEA effect. Human beings are driven by this bias that we place a higher value on things that we partially create ourselves. And so a lot of Australian property investors that never get past too many properties, never really create financial wealth out of real estate, fundamentally own real estate in pretty tough parts of our cities and our regions, own real estate, which is decaying, dying, and they tinker with it. And the reason they love this is because of a certain bias whereby they are partially involved in doing something to the real estate. And again, these are probably the two reasons why most people don't actually get to owning several properties because they are subject to these biases. And I don't even know if that's if you say that that way, biases. Now, I might come back next week and go over a whole bunch of biases, if that's a word. But today, I mean, the two big ones, um, the bandwagon effect. Now, let's face it, if the property market cycles 10 to 15 years and two or three of those years are good years and 13 of 12 or 13 of those years are stagnant years or slow years, then uh, how will we become wealthy if all we do is follow the bandwagon? So again, this is where we've got to extract value out of real estate. We're going to be predictive about real estate and I'll explain property design theory. And of course, uh, why a lot of people don't get to financial freedom themselves and owning multiple properties that create high levels of income is a lot of people tinker with degrade property, then they're kind of stuck with it. They're a tinkerer uh, and they feel good because of the care effect, but they don't actually have real estate in high growth marketplaces. Now, again, the Forex growth plan advocates that we want a good marketplace. We want a great marketplace, good fundamentals, the six market drivers which I just mentioned. Also, the Forex growth plan advocates that if you buy well, you're going to get growth and we call that deal growth. 
deal growth is important. And again, like a lot of people love deal growth. They love the idea that they've got themselves something and the money's in the deal. Now, when it comes to the fundamentals of real estate, you could buy real estate where the deal is good, but the location is bad. So again, don't do a deal in a C or D grade location because then you have to hold the asset. I'd rather do no deal and just pay market a fair market price for an A-grade property in an A-grade location. So this is the trade-off we have in real estate. A lot of uh, property that is put to marketplace is C or D-grade locations, but you know potentially you can tinker with it. Now, I'm a big fan of tinkering with real estate, but doing it properly, renovating, developing, building, amalgamating, land subdivisions. The reason I like doing that kind of stuff is that I've learned over the years that bigger deals are better to actually trade off or flip as part of a joint venture. So when I do deal making, I avoid the IKEA effect. I avoid the idea of tinkering. I just go for it. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. And so in real estate, the problem with real estate deal making is there's more degrade properties that uh, people tinker with that don't make good properties to hold. And so the Ikea effect becomes this kind of mousetrap. And as the market starts to soften, then people kind of are left holding the bag of a property which is full of capital costs, full of holding costs, and doesn't grow. And so where they own that real estate, again, is just circumspect places. So how can we work around this model. And again, when it comes to deal growth, I love the idea that you can set yourself up with the right strategy. It could be the, you know, pre-construction, building, amalgamating, it could be developing. But particularly with renovating, developing and subdividing, these are strategies you don't want to tinker with. You want to go all the way, right? And Again, like when I look at the cost of renovation today, like it is a lot of things don't stack up, right? You know, you're anywhere from two to four thousand dollars a meter a meter to renovate today if you're going to do it properly. A proper transformation. Uh, if you're going to buy a property, you've then got to work out well. Okay, this home, you know, it's two hundred and forty square meters. Sixty percent of the home needs renovating minimum 2,000 a meter, that's a $288,000 upgrade to bring that property into the modern world, right? So renovation can be very capital intensive, but so what a lot of people do is they sit on a project that they never do the project on. And again, they tinker like Ikea. They don't actually go for it. Now, again, for, for me, like I prefer to to go well how can i be predictive about capital growth 
And if I'm going to actually do a deal, I go for it. I don't tinker. I'll do the whole renovation and I'll try and to do the flip or I'll do the whole development and I'll try and do the flip, right? So deal growth is important, but don't let it send you in a chaotic direction when it comes to where you own real estate. So the Forex growth plan is deal growth is out there, market growth is out there, but there's actually two other forms of capital growth. And today's podcast, if you like, property design theory is very much about the two other forms of capital growth. Really, they should be the first and second version of creating capital growth, not the market and certainly not just being a deal maker. So this leads us to the conversation about being predictive about capital growth versus predicting capital growth. There is a difference. Obviously, I've never met anyone who is accurate predicting capital growth. Some people are better than others. But how can we be predictive around capital growth? So we don't have to worry about this idea of the bandwagon. In other words, that we just need everyone to be happy to actually be a property investor. Now, remember, with property investment, volatility in real estate generally comes from the demand side, not the supply side. Like, real estate generally, you know, nine years out of 10 is not going to be oversupplied. Um, Some suburbs face oversupply, so there will be volatility. But for the most part, most inner, middle, um, even you know, middle outer ring kind of areas are that, you know, their their stock of the, the ability to put more stock in those marketplaces is circumstance. So the volatility in real estate generally comes from the demand side. And again, this is the bandwagon side. Rates, rates are up. So the bandwagon doesn't want to play the game. Availability of credit, harder. So the bandwagon doesn't want to play the game. So what happens is when the demand side of the marketplace starts to cool off, obviously there's less bandwagon, so that can affect prices. Prices can start to fall. However, there is a counteraction to the bandwagon, and that is based around location, location, location. So if you've got a good property, it's got great location, it's got great lifestyle, it's got great land, and it's got great space, people are going to love to live there. So what generally happens is when volatility hits the marketplace because of rates and availability credit, it's the areas where people hate living and where tenants hate being that typically go down in value. And again, we call this property design theory. If we can find the best land in the best locations in the best that have the best space, we're going to be better off because our real estate may not surge in value, but it will certainly hold its value until the volatility of the market passes. So an example, if you like, of property design theory or predictive growth theory rather than ban- being on the bandwagon is waterfront properties, right? Now, if you track the 
premium people pay across various cities around the world for waterfront properties, you get huge results. Sydney, the premium people will pay in price for a waterfront property from one person to the next is over 120%. Again, the market may have risen by zero, but because the property is on the waterfront, um, and obviously the caveat to that with things like climate change is, you know, a appropriate waterfront, not some sand dune slipping into the water, um, people are paying more for that real estate. And we call that predictive growth. How do we be predictive about our capital growth? I'm buying a property at the moment. Unencumbered views, beautiful views. Um, never to be built out views. Predictive growth. You're going to get growth. People love views. Now, it doesn't matter what the market's doing. Someone still wants a view. Someone still wants a waterfront. And again, like... When it comes to the two mousetraps of real estate, they tend to be the bandwagon effect and also the IKEA effect. No one really wants the property which you've tinkered with, which is not, uh, a, you know, appropriately designed. And of course, that gets punished in the marketplace whereby values start to fall away. And when we look at real estate, we can see that people are still prepared to pay a premium for a beautifully renovated property. They're prepared to pay a premium for a nice designed piece of real estate. So we can be predictive about capital growth and also um, we can do that by just making sure that we follow the two other X's. So remember, the 4X growth plan, you can make money out of a deal, but you want to do that in an A-grade location. Otherwise, if you're just all about deals, you've got to be, you can't be half pregnant. You've got to go for it. Buy, uh, add value, and sell. Otherwise, you get pushed to D-grade marketplaces where you tinker. You become uh, a piece of IKEA furniture. So then you've got the market. The market is the bandwagon. Bandwagon goes up, bandwagon disappears. So the other two predictive growth methods for property design theory are the other two X's in the 4X growth plan. The first one, location, 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 or location growth. The second one, behavioral growth. Uh, what behaviors the property creates by... Uh, it through its position. So let's go back to the waterfront. Location, location, location. Pretty hard to beat trophy waterfront, waterfront real estate. What behaviours do you get at a waterfront property? The behaviour of swimming. So, or the behaviour of having a boat or the behaviour of having a beach. So again, you look at what you can predict in capital growth very hard to predict the market's going to go up, down, because the bandwagon is the bandwagon. But we know if you buy a waterfront property, the odds of you creating capital growth are extremely high because most people in society 
would want that if they could afford it. So property design theory works on the basis that humans will pay more for better locations, better land, and of course, better buildings. And they will use logic to justify their decision-making. So location characteristics is the first part of the puzzle, then land characteristics, then building characteristics. These are all part of what makes up a piece of real estate to buy when it comes to being predictive around capital growth. Now, I have a little quote. Uh, It is actually my quote. I've got a couple of quotes now. I've actually been quoted in, in a book which is great, by my friend Marcus. But uh, this quote is something that I think is vitally important, right? You can do what you want to real estate, renovate it, subdivide it, develop it, but you can never change its location. So if you're a holder, uh, you have to understand that you're holding a location. You're not just buying real estate, you're holding a location, So how do we define a good location? Obviously, there are three elements to that. Good for shelter, people like living there, great community, great community capital. And I've done an episode on what is community capital, community assets, and a stronger storage of wealth. In other words, uh, the real estate is so good, people do not want to part with it. Now, community capital simply means capital means assets. So community capital is community assets. Why are some suburbs better than others? Well, you know this, the seven community assets that exist. Natural assets, the natural beauty of an area. Now, you just got to go back a few podcasts if you want to listen to the whole conversation around the idea of what a good location is. The good location equals good community. Good community has seven different principles to it the natural community, the cultural community, the human beings that live in the community, what you can do in the community, the social aspects of it, the built community, what uh, you get by living there, train stations, um, what you get when it comes to, you know, jobs close by, that kind of thing. The natural community is parks, uh, forests, uh, beaches, that kind of thing. The financial capacity of the community being obviously what people earn and how important is that today in a split income society? You know, how do you put the rent up on old mate who's uh, a casual worker and busted ass? Very difficult. And of course, uh, the political capital is just the idea of power. You know, what kind of power does a place have? Does it have um you know, is it very tightly controlled? Is it uh, is it going to benefit from taxpayers' dollars and so forth? Now, I mentioned this on a previous podcast. I won't harp on about it, but when you think about Byron Bay, and I use Byron Bay because it's a simple example that most people probably have travelled to a place like Byron Bay. It's got beautiful natural capital. It's got beautiful cultural capital. It's got beautiful human capital. Great social capital, there's heaps of stuff to do. Uh, It's got great financial capital, like people aren't busted ass there anymore. They're quite wealthy. It's got great political capital. It can push its weight around as a neighbourhood. It even defies certain rules that the rest of the state have to adhere by. Uh, Very high on political capital. It's built capital is great, like 
you know, the local pub. Everyone wants to go there. You know, it's not overbuilt, and uh, that's one of its beauties. It's got great uh, community capital. So it makes it a great location. So I like teaching in real estate from a location perspective. We want high community assets. And also, if you are a property investor, you're going to basically have five different choices when it comes to good places to invest. Now, the five choices, if you like, are monopoly-based marketplaces. These are typically heritage or rare infill areas. What makes them monopoly-based marketplaces is there's no availability of new properties or new land or, you know, if there's a development that goes into those areas, it is very much usually simple and, you know, arguably you know, very rare to come to marketplace. And again, this is where this kind of new versus old rhetoric does my head in because at the end of the day, if you can buy a newer property in a heritage suburb, that sounds like a good idea to me. If you could buy the character property, which is, you know, a couple of million bucks and you can afford it, it sounds like a good idea to me. At the end of the day, real estate um, when it comes to the supply side of real estate is around how supply works. And obviously, monopoly-based marketplaces where there is heritage and it's rare to get real estate into a marketplace which is built out seems like a good idea, right? So again, so when we're drilling down on location, we're starting with the community. Then we're going into what type of communities exist and what we can afford. Second community is very NIMBY real estate, sometimes referred to as oligolopy marketplaces. Now, oligolopies just means that the seller is always in charge. And again, like if you think about how Australian supermarkets work, and I use this example all the time, you got Coles, you got Woolworths, you got Audi, you got IGA, that those four run the system. There's not like a hundred different competition places to go and buy your your food. So it's an oligopoly. It's controlled by the seller. It's the pricing power is with the seller. If they want to basically all put the price up, they all put the price up and everyone has to pay. So it's really driven by lack of choice of sellers. And so Oligopoly markets or very NIMBY markets just fundamentally allow you to control real estate in tightly held marketplaces being um, very predictive about capital growth because if there's obviously less stock flowing around, you're in charge of a piece of it. Someone wants to buy in that suburb and you know your neighbours want to sell or whatever it may be or you want to sell, you're probably going to see uh, price movement in the right direction. Then we've got emerging marketplaces. Emerging marketplaces are generally led through a form of gentrification. And again, there's a cycle involved in gentrification. Um, you know, the more polished a market is, the later it is in its gentrification cycle, probably the consensus is in the price and you'll end up paying for that consensus. However, um, when it comes to being predictive around capital growth, 
We know if you can follow gentrification, you're going to be able to be more predictive about capital growth. Then we've got aspirational markets. Uh, aspirational markets are things like school belts, sand belts, um, their green belts. Like if you're going to buy near a park or you're going to buy near a school that everyone wants to go to, these are predictors of capital growth. If you're going to buy near the beach, another predictor of capital growth. A lot of investors today are having to go to what we refer to as competition markets. In other words, um, they're led by population growth. A lot of people are moving towards those areas. So when you go to competition marketplaces, you simply use the same logic, uh, which bits of the competition marketplace, new land corridors, if you like, are more tightly held than others, which is states are more in demand than others. And again, this is how you control the supply side. The demand side, if you like, is really the most volatile side, right? The demand side is the bandwagon. You can control the supply side. The supply side is just decision making. And again, like I love finding areas which are affordable, highly livable, and because they're affordable and highly livable, what you find is a huge demand gap that people today are priced out of so many livable places where everyone wants to live. So many people are priced out of Bondi that if you find a version of that in the uh, inner city, you're going to find the next phase of aspiration. And of course, this leads to where real estate becomes predictive around growth. Now, I use rule 10. Rule 10 is just the idea that if you are going to buy in a location, you want to make sure there's 10 you know, good things happening. And that could be access to jobs, access to schools, access to parks, how walkable an area is, it's access to transport, how geographically mobile an area is, it's treescape, it's crime rate, how visually appealing the neighbourhood is, how the citizens in the neighbourhood behave, are they looking to obtain a higher social status and just how you know much there is to do on the weekend. You know, recreation and culture makes up a big part of people's lifestyle. So I think we can tick off the location part. The location part just works in two sections, community assets, and then you're breaking down the supply side. Do you want a monopoly-based market, an oligopoly-based market, an emerging market led by gentrification, an aspirational market led by predictors, things like schools that everyone wants to go to, or do you want a competition market where things are cheaper, but if you're going to buy in a competition market, you recycle the other four. You look for where the best school is in that competition market. Competition markets just basically mean there's really the only differential of the suburb itself is price. So if price is the only differential, then you need to look for niche things in the suburb, which mean your real estate is more valuable predictors so in real estate there is really two parts of the puzzle there's human beings and then there's property 
And of course, there is traditional economics, which is the bandwagon. Then there's behavioral economics, which is the emotion. Now, the less emotion people have towards an area, the less they actually care about what is going on in that area. And of course, quite often you see the consensus in markets correcting, whereby people just don't want uh, to hold on to that property, right? So that's where, you know, obviously if things sell, they sell for a weaker level. Capital growth comes from emotional people paying too much for property. And when we go back to property design theory, human beings will pay more, for better locations, the better land, and of course, better buildings to justify their logic. They'll use emotional intelligence to justify their logic. So if we know that people will pay more and growth is more predictive around better locations, better land, and of course, better buildings, then that's what we need to do. Now, the land characteristics are driven by the supply side. There is just less availability of really interesting land. So when I look at opportunities to be predictive around capital growth, if you can't afford, for example, to buy your own land, then you've got to borrow it from the community. And this is whereby if you are looking for real estate and you are on a budget, what I tend to do is go, well, I'm buying in a marketplace which is gentrifying. What That is the location strategy. But then within that location, there's bucket loads of places to it, like bucket loads of titled land that we have to go and sort out. Then we look for the land and the best land wins. Now, whether that's for a house, an apartment, a townhouse, a villa, the end of the day, we want to look at land content. Now, as I alluded to, if you've got a million dollars today, you're not going to have a problem with land content. If you don't have a million dollars to invest, you're probably going to have a problem with land content. So what do you do? You borrow land. And again, this goes back to the principle of waterfront real estate. What are people borrowing when they buy waterfront real estate? They're borrowing the water. They don't own the water. The water is a borrowed piece of natural amenity. So generally, when I'm looking for real estate to be predictive around capital growth, I know if I can find uh, land next to, for example, a park, I not only get the land, but I also get the park. The park creates the predictive nature of capital growth. So today, a lot of people are worried about the bandwagon. And what I would be more worried about is not buying real estate where there is a predictor. And of course, this is where people end up with those C and D grade assets where they're just waiting for, you know, tinkering, playing with Ikea instead of either fully getting into it or just buying a predictor of capital growth to begin with. So when I look for land opportunities, I'm always looking for something whereby the neighborhood is going to recognize that my land is the best. 
Now, when I when I talk about this, it's like it can be for an apartment, a townhouse, a villa, or a house, right? And so you can rank land A, B, and C. C is obviously, you know, down low. You can go to D. D is like you're on the main road, there's noise, there's pollution. A is, well, across the street, you're looking at, you know, a beautiful tree-lined canopy or there's a park across the street or there's water over, like you, in front of you, right? This is the A system. So what you're looking for when it comes to being a predictor of capital growth is the A system. You're looking for really interesting pieces of real estate whereby in front of you is a predictor. Now, again, like I help people buy $400,000 properties. When you think about uh, people buying a $400,000 property and not spending a million bucks, it's very difficult to get A-grade land spending, you know, three, dollars $400,000. So what do you do? You borrow land from the neighborhood. You buy it across the street from a park. You buy across the street from something which is community-based amenity. Um, and, you know, a big part of my job every day, if you like, is finding these type of assets whereby property design theory unfolds. A-grade land characteristics create emotion and scarcity and drive price growth. They, they do it in good times and bad times. If you can't afford to buy your own land, then you borrow land from the community. You buy the property across the road with the nice street appeal from the park. This is why land characteristic is so important. Regardless, again, if it's a house, a townhouse, an apartment, it's critical, critical to the process because it is a predictor of capital growth. And again, the more you can do this, the more you're going to see the overall results of your real estate over time improve. Now, if you want to be the IKEA guy, you can always tinker later. This is, again, the conversation. You know, you can renovate, you can develop, you can subdivide, you can do what you want to real estate, but you can never change its location. So my argument is let's go with the best location then circle back and tinker if that's what you want to do. Now, property design theory also relates to not only location characteristics, land characteristics, but also you've got the characteristics of the building itself. Now, again, this is where a lot of people buy the tinkerer, something that they can play with, they get IKEA bias because they're invested in it. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm up upgrading the the shitty kitchen with another shitty kitchen um you know at the end of the day if it walks like a duck looks like a duck quacks like a duck it's probably a duck right there's more capital out in society than there is good real estate so we want to use property design theory good location great land whether it's for the apartment the house the house the townhouse then we want to use property design theory around better real estate. Now, better buildings just store a better version of wealth. That's the way it works. 
Again, there are three design criteria. It's functional design, which is how nice it is to live in. Functional design, is it a dysfunctional property? Is it a rabbit warren or is it a beautiful property today for living the lifestyle of today? Reflective design logic, what that is, is basically how the real estate impacts your Uh, how proud you are. Does the real estate make you want to be proud owning it? Social status is a thing. Reflective design is an energy. I always described reflective design as to why do people buy a Rolex? Because it's a social piece of proof, right? And by the way, Rolex is best performing asset going around at the moment, which is just amazing. But reflective design is the design theory that if you, if people look at the asset and go, wow, my social status is going to improve by the asset, then uh, I will pay more for it. And again, this is the demand side of the equation. People will pay more for better things. Behavioral design logic is just what the real estate has that creates things to do. Things to do. Now, having a swimming pool is a thing to do. It creates swimming. Now, that may be too extreme for a lot of property investors. A lot of the nice designed real estate, which commands a premium in the marketplace today, has pools. Uh, If you're going to do a renovation of a property and it's in a marketplace where families want to live and they want to spend $1.5 million and you're picking up an asset to renovate, you might have to drop... $100,000 pool. That's just the way it works. So behavioral design logic is what does the real estate create and uh, when it comes to things to do. And so I always like, you know, for my smaller properties, I always, you know, add things to do, whether it's a breakfast bar on the balcony, whether it's um, a wet kitchen outside, you know, that creates a second kitchen, a barbecue Things to do. Things to do equals uh, results from real estate. So why does some real estate, again, um, when it comes to predictive growth, why does it do better than others? Because it's nice to use. It makes people feel proud and it gives people things to do. And that's why when we look for predictors, we want good Location characteristics, land characteristics, and building characteristics. Now, there's a saying in real estate that goes like, land goes up, buildings depreciate. I think we've all heard that saying. However, not all buildings depreciate at the same rate. In other words, we all get the same mathematical depreciation from buildings if we obviously buy them under the tax scheme. However, Some buildings are just not worth as much as others. Better buildings hold on to their worth longer and store more wealth. That's just the way it works. Now, if you think about Federation properties, uh, beautiful terrace, Victorian terraces, maybe a beautiful Queenslander, maybe a beautiful boom-style piece of real estate, uh, maybe some beautiful Art Deco apartments or apartments driven by the genre of functionalism, they carry a premium. That's 
They are like, you know, gold out in the real estate marketplace. And of course, if you look at some of the more modern properties from the modern creations of real estate, some of them are also very good. They'll go on to be seen as very iconic pieces of real estate 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now. Again, this is where architecture matters. Design matters in real estate. We're living in a modern world and some of the modern properties also fall into the characteristics that they are going to be better buildings. And of course, then there are C-grade buildings. Some are new, some are old, some are half old, half new. There are plenty of C-grade buildings. You just got to drive around a city and you'll see bucket loads of them. You'll drive around your suburb, you'll see heaps, you'll see dysfunction at work. So again, if we want A-grade location, we want A-grade land, we don't want to undo that by just having C-grade assets on it that no one wants to rent if we're holding. So we want to start with A-grade location, A-grade land, and if we can get an A-grade building, then we have in our midst a triple A piece of real estate. So what is property design theory? Well, it's pretty simple. You can find a great location, a great piece of land, whether it's for a house, townhouse, villa or house, and a great building, and you put them all together and you get long-term wealth. And this is the way the cycle goes. The A-grade investors buy the A-grade land, the A-grade locations and the A-grade homes. And then uh, they renovate after profit is created. They will add some value as time goes on, but that's how they do it. All the A-grade investors basically act like A-grade investors by profitable projects to do uh, whether they're renovations to flip, whether they're developments to unlock uh, profits from, and then they activate them. That's what they do. C-grade investors buy C-grade land, C-grade locations, and C-grade builds and try and tinker with them over the years, suffering the IKEA effect. Some eventually get so sick of their dwelling and just how much upkeep there is, they then sell typically at a loss to more C-grade investors. That's kind of how it works. A-grade investors, long-term appreciations, they look for minimal overheads and maximum flexibility. This is the system. It's always been like uh, that way and uh, it's the way it'll always be. So, hey guys, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. Catch you next time as we talk more real estate. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care. And